0: You're listening to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church in Fanville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. My name's Dan Carson. I'm the family pastor here at Calvary, and we would love to meet and to worship with you and your family. Our worship time is 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fanville, Arkansas. And if you're looking for more information about the church, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is starting a new series called Lessons from the Upper Room with a message entitled Jesus Washes the Disciples' Feet from John chapter 13, verses 1-5. through 5. Let's listen together.
1: Let me ask you a question. What would you give... To spend an evening with Jesus, hearing Him teach, hearing Him pray, able to ask questions of Him and get personal answers. What would you spend for an evening like that? Well, you see, that's exactly what we have in John, chapters 13 through 17. Five chapters, and if you have a red letter Bible, Almost every word in those five chapters are in red because they are exclusively the words of our Savior. As the shadow of the cross was being cast over his life and was looming large, for it was going to take place the next day, less than 24 hours before his sacrificial death, Jesus spent this time investing in the hearts and the troubled minds of his disciples. He was there to intercede on their behalf. We read in these chapters the most comprehensive, the most detailed prayer that Jesus ever prayed. Now, over the next few weeks, between now and Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at some of the events, some of the things that take place in these chapters, this night before Jesus uh, was betrayed. The picture of Christ's ministry from his washing the disciples' feet, which we'll read about today, to his high priestly prayer. This shows us the heart of our Savior. Now, if you remember, and I realize it's been a long time, it's already been at least two weeks. Since the month of February, when we focused on on a series called Matters of the heart, talking about our hearts in the month of love, February, we talked about the heart. And we learned that when it comes to our hearts, our hearts are deceitful and completely untrustworthy. When someone ever says to you, just follow your heart, there's no worse advice that you could ever be given. Because your heart will trick you. It will deceive you. It will mislead you. I think it's appropriate that we follow that study up with looking at the heart of Jesus. And that's what we find all through the Gospels, but nowhere more detailed and more specifically than John 13 through 17. In these five chapters, we see the most intimate words that Jesus ever spoke We see the entire gospel story in just a few words. And we have enough truth to spend the rest of our lives studying, even if God had never given us the rest of the Bible. So with that in mind, let's read our text for today. John chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... "...when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the dead and was going back to the dead, Rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, certainly, for it. Folks, verses four and five. Of this text that we just read are by no doubt the most shocking and unexpected things that Jesus ever did. Much of it is lost on you and me because we're living now, 2,000 years later, in a totally different culture, both in the world and In the church. But it seems that the words of the first three verses are said to put the next two verses, verse four and five, in even greater contrast and make them even more unbelievable. You see, it was this display of Jesus' humility and his servanthood that is so shocking. For the disciples, the washing of their feet was in direct contrast to their heart attitudes at the time. If you remember Luke, in Luke chapter 22, writing about these, some of these same events, not in the kind of detail, but we find in Luke 22 that the disciples were having an argument, an ongoing argument. It had been taking place for some time now, going back to Jesus' ministry, even in Galilee. The argument was who of the disciples was going to be the greatest when the kingdom came? Who was going to be the greatest in heaven? How were they going to sit at that heavenly table? Who would be the closest to God? Who would be the furthest? We find that, if you remember, even the mother of James and John had come to to plead on her son's behalf that they should be on the right and the left of Jesus. And this very night, there was, there was the argument, the Bible said it was a dispute. Who was the greatest? And then here in the midst of that context, Jesus does something that by watching shows him to be not the greatest, but the least in the eyes of the world. You see, in Bible times, walking in sandals during the dry season that was hot and incredibly dusty. The feet and lower legs would become encased in just a layer of clay and filth and dirt. And when it rained in the rainy season, they would be walking in ankle-deep mud and carrying that with them Everywhere they went, it was customary that whenever you came into someone's home, if you were their guest, that they would assign the lowest servant of all, not even the household servants, but the household slave or slaves to come and wash the feet of the guest for some reason, maybe at Jesus' instructions. The owner of this home where they had the Last Supper, where they observed the Passover meal, no such slave was assigned to do that. And so Jesus and his disciples. As they reclined, and that's how they ate. That's how they died. It was a long event. As they reclined at a low table, and their feet and legs were evident to one another, it was imperative that their feet be cleaned before eating the meal. And so who took upon himself the task to do that? Jesus, the King of glory, Jesus, the creator of the world. Jesus, the son of God in flesh. They come to save their souls. Jesus, the one who is worthy of all their devotion, of all their worship. The very one whose presence should have rebuked any discussion of who was going to be the greatest. Jesus gets up from the table before eating and takes off his outer garments wrapped only in In a towel and gets a basin of water and begins to wash the disciples' feet. They must have been stunned. In fact, Peter was so stunned, he said, You're not going to wash my feet. Little did you know, he was expressing pride even in that argument exalting himself. You can't wash my feet. Jesus had to rebuke him. But you see, this is what Jesus came to earth to do. The Bible tells us that this king and this conqueror, first of all, came as a servant, that he did not come to be served, He came to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So He would do His work of a slave this night to wash their feet and the work of even greater humility the next day to hang naked on a cross to die for their sins. The humility expressed by this act with a towel and basin foreshadowed His ultimate act of humility and love on the cross. Okay, so the question has to be asked, what does that mean to you and me? What does that mean to you and me? I believe it means everything. For you see, we live in a very proud and egotistical generation. Maybe the most proud, maybe the most egotistical generation Since the time of Christ. Today it is considered acceptable. And even normal. For people to promote themselves. To praise themselves. To put themselves first. We always want the best seat. We always want the prominent position. We always want to be acknowledged. And recognized. Pride is considered a virtue. By many. If you don't believe that. Just just watch professional athletes and not even professional athletes. Humility, on the other hand, is considered a weakness in our day and time. Everyone, it seems, is screaming for his or her own rights, seeking to be recognized as someone important. And if you have a hard time believing that, just check out social media. Have you seen my latest image of me? Click. So and so has posted a new photo of himself or herself. Oh boy, I can't wait to see it. That's the kind of pride that fills our culture today. Sadly, the preoccupation with self has found its way into the church. Perhaps the fastest growing phenomenon in modern Christianity is the emphasis on pride the teaching on self esteem self image and self fulfillment and other manifestations of selfism if that is a word we have a whole new religion of self centeredness pride and even arrogance in many of the lord's churches today but the bible tells us that it has no place in a christian church and in christian theology Nowhere is that more clear than what Jesus did in this chapter, in just five verses. He stunned the disciples, and he shocks the world, that the greatest of the great is the least of all. Paul said this to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3. You're familiar with the words, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others. That means everyone else. You are to count everyone else more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also look to the interest of others. Have this mind, this attitude, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something that he had to grasp or hold on to." In other words, even though he was equal with the Father, and even though he was God himself, he was willing to turn loose, not turn loose of his deity, not turn loose of his godliness... Not turn loose of his innocence, his righteousness, but turn loose of his privilege. To turn loose of all of, of the things that went with that privilege and to be counted instead by emptying himself. He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, just like you and me. And being found in human forth, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful means of death that there ever was. And therefore, because he was willing to do that, God the Father has highly exalted him, has given him a name that is above every other name, bestowed on him the name that is above every other's, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me give you a key truth. Then I'm going to give you four statements. Understand, I'll move through them very quickly. But here's the key truth you need to understand. Your attitude informs your action. Your attitude, how you think, what you think, what you believe informs. It directs your actions. Actions flow from attitudes. Attitudes don't flow from action, okay? The inside is what guides what you do on the outside. What we know will determine what we do. So, why do I say that? Well, Jesus' actions were these, to strip himself down to a towel to get a wash basin with water and then to kneel down at the filthy feet of sinful people and remember this even Judas even Judas for he had not yet been dismissed to betray Jesus so here's Jesus on his knees in this stunning astonishing act of humility Washing the filthy feet of the disciples, even the one who is going to betray him, resulting in his death the next day. So what kind of attitude, what kind of inward thoughts and beliefs motivated that kind of act? What kind of attitude on Jesus' part informed his actions in the upper room that evening before his crucifixion. Well, that's the very reason Paul said, let this attitude have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Jesus. Jesus' attitude is what should be our attitude, and it should make us servants of all others, even our enemies. So what caused Jesus to think that way? The first three verses of this text Gives us some insight. And as I walk back through them. Watch for the word. Know. Or knew. What Jesus knew. What Jesus understood. What Jesus believed. First of all. Write this down. Jesus knew. What time it was. Now that's a very interesting thought. On this day. When we have all right leapt forward an hour as the Chicago uh, group used to sing, does anyone really know what time it is? Well, thanks to our Apple phones and our Apple watches, we do. It does it automatically for us. But we all who are old enough have stories about either arriving at church too early in the fall or too late in the spring and embarrassing ourselves because we didn't know what time it was. Well, I want you to know, Jesus always knew what time it was. Look at verse 1 again. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus, there it is, knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. By the way, when it says he loved them to the end, it means he loved them to perfection. He loved them as much as love could ever be expressed. He loved them more than his own life itself. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, it's interesting. If you read the Gospels, you'll discover several times a statement something like, Jesus knew that it was not his hour yet. You find that in chapter 7 of John. You find it in chapter 8 and probably some other places. He knew when it was not his hour. But now he knew that it was his hour. Now he knew that the time had come that he is about to end up nailed to a cross. Jesus knew the time. Now listen, I know what you're thinking. Jesus knew everything, right? All the time, he was God. He knew what was going to happen even before it happened and all of that. But I want you to know, the Bible emphasizes that you and I, as God's people, it is important that we understand the time as well. Did you know that? Have you read, for instance, First Chronicles uh, chapter 12 lately? Probably you can't exactly just pull up exactly what that's talking about off the top of your head. But what you find is that David has come to be the king of Israel. And after those dark days under King Saul, there was enthusiasm and excitement all through the land. I wish I could go to 1 1 Chronicles 12 and read some verses to you, but it's talking about how from this tribe there were this number of thousand of men who made their way to Hebron where David was. And how many were from this place? and how many were from these other places. And it talks about all these thousands of people and what their expertise was. There were those who could fire arrows equally from the right hand or from the left. I can't even eat with my left hand. There were those who the Bible said had faces like gazelles and they could run like the wind, like eagles of the sky. There were those where every single one of those warriors from that tribe, out of the thousands of them, one was equal to a hundred average men, and two was equal to a thousand. All these great men and skilled people coming by the tens of thousands to offer themselves to David. And tucked in the middle of it is one sentence, verse 32. It mentions the men of Issachar. And you know what I said about the men of Issachar? Among all these other great warriors, there were only 200 of these men. But it said about Issachar and these men, they knew what Israel should do. Why? Because they understood the times and knew as a result which way Israel ought to go. I will say to you, those 200 were more than equal to all the tens of thousands who were great warriors. They understood the times. Jesus in Matthew 16, speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, he rebuked them for not being able to discern the times. How can you lead God's people if you don't even know what time it is? How can you be of any spiritual, let alone any other kind of assistance, the people of god if you don't even know the hour then in romans 13 paul admonishes the church he admonishes you and me he says it is high time it is high time to awake out of our slumber out of our sleep Why? For salvation is nearer today, he says, than it has ever been before, even nearer than when you first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. And if Paul needed to say that to the Roman church 2,000 years ago, listen, the Lord's church today needs to hear that message. Do we not? The last two years have been God's wake-up call to a lazy, sleeping church in America. It's been a wake-up call to many of us. For even after this pandemic, after churches have been uh, diminished in numbers and in numerical strength and a lot of other things, understand now we know who the true church is that we did not know before. There were those who were asleep When the wake-up call came, they just drifted deeper into their slumber and further away from church and further away from God. Understand, God is waking up the church today. We have no excuse living in a world that is literally sleeping its way right into hell. There's no reason why you and I should be asleep as well. We need to know the time We need not to isolate ourselves and walk alone. For that only leads to greater drowsiness. It is time for us to wake up. Do you believe the gospel is good news for lost people? Do you believe that? I mean, that's a serious question. Because we often say it, but I wonder if we really believe it. Do you believe that the gospel is good news? Let me say this to you. It is only good news if it gets to them on time. It is not good news if they end up dying and go to hell because we were sleeping or too lazy or too drowsy in order to share the gospel with them. The good news, the gospel, is only good news if it gets to people on time. Do you know what time it is? Jesus did. And knowing what time it was, He washed the disciples' feet, and he died the next day. Number two, not only did Jesus know what time it was, look down to verse three. Verse three says, Jesus, knowing, there's the word again, that the Father had given all things into his hands. Let's pause there for just a minute, and I've named that this, this way. Jesus not only knew what time it was, Jesus knew what. Who he was. Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of the heavenly father. How did he know that? Well one evidence we have. Is because the father had given all things into his hands. The father had entrusted to him. Everything that was important. He was called by John in the beginning of John's gospel, the Word of God. Why was Jesus called the Word? Why is Word capitalized in John chapter 1 and verse 1? Why does it say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Why does it call Him the Word? Because He is The expression, he is the word, the message, the counsel, the advice of God to a world who needs to hear from God. Jesus is the spoken word. He is the written word. He is also the living incarnate word. Jesus never had a doubt as to who he was and why he was here. He knew he was the messenger, the prophet, 260 plus names and titles in the Bible, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the bright morning star, it goes on and on and on. He knew who he was. He was not a political activist seeking social reform. He was not confused or caught up in the politics of the day. He was not some kind of faith healer, traveling evangelist, miracle-working huckster. He was not an angel. He was the Son of God. And knowing who He was, He knew what His purpose and what His mission was. Now, beloved, we're not the Savior. We're not the Christ. But it's imperative as Christians that we know who we are as well. For just as Jesus was a messenger to the lost in his day, we are the one who carries his message to our world Today, this Jesus was the only begotten, the one and only Son of the living God. He was God in the flesh. He was and is the Savior and only hope of a world dying in sin. And we are His sons and daughters. We're literally His brothers and His sisters. And when He left this world, He entrusted the mission to us that the Father had entrusted to Him. Jesus knew who He was Today, many Christians don't understand who they are in this world. Some of you don't understand that you have the authority to speak for God in this world. Some of you perhaps are not even certain about your own walk with Christ and your own salvation. Some of you are still maybe daily praying a prayer that God would save you just to be sure just to cover all your bases. Some of you maybe have slipped into sin in the past, maybe even the recent past, and you drifted away from God, maybe a long ways away from God, maybe for a long time, but understand, no matter how far away from God you've ever wandered, the trail back is just one step. If you'll just turn around and repent, He is right there. You don't have to earn your way back into his favor. You couldn't do that if you wanted to. You can't work your way back into his kindness. It's just one step. Ask for his forgiveness, repent, and turn back to him. If you've never truly given your life to Christ, regardless of what your past experience with the church has been, or your experience growing up, if you do not not know Christ, It's just one step to Christ today. Will you give your heart and life to Him? Will you follow Him? Will you commit yourself to Him? We are a people of purpose. Folks, Calvary Baptist Church, for many people in the city of Fayetteville and those places around us, we are their only hope of heaven. There's a purpose and a plan and a mission for us. And we've got to know what it is. And we need to be certain about who we are. This knowledge of who Jesus is gave him a sense of purpose, but it also gives us a sense of purpose. He knew what his relationship was with the Father. Do you know yours? He had set his face like a flint, the scripture says, to go to Jerusalem and to offer his life, not to be distracted this way or this way, not to to lose sight of that, not to waver. That meant during the course of his life, listen to me, there were no accidents, there were no coincidences, there were no wasted words, there were no regrets. And the same can be true about your life and mine, that nothing random has ever happened to you. Nothing coincidental or accidental has ever happened to you. Everything God has allowed in your life, God has directed into your life, and there's a plan and a purpose for all of it so that you would be a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl of purpose. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what time it was. He knew who he he was. Very quickly, let me give you the last two. Jesus knew where he had come from. That's number three. And number four, Jesus knew he was going. Notice what the rest of verse three had to say. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, he knew where he came from, and he was going back to God, knowing these things, what did he do? He knelt down. And was willing to be a slave to others. All of those things should have caused him to elevate himself in the eyes of everybody. Humanly speaking, knowing what time it was and knowing who he belonged to and and knowing where he had come from and knowing where he was going could have given him every reason to say, Listen, everybody, get down and bow down to me. But he never did that, ever. He was always found kneeling and serving. He was there at the beginning, the real beginning. We've already talked about that. In the beginning was the Word. And this word became flesh, John 1 says, and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He knew where he was going. That great mystery, that, that thing we like to think about, but it mystifies us. Well, what about heaven? We think about heaven and we think about where we are going as God's children. And it all seems so far away, doesn't it? We think about loved ones and dear friends that have already made that journey through that curtain through which we cannot see. Some have been gone for so long, it gets harder and harder and harder to remember their face to remember their voice, to remember their presence. But can I say to you that heaven isn't nearly so far away from you as you think it is? Heaven is not way out there somewhere. Heaven is all around us. It's another dimension into which we cannot go in this flesh. But when it comes time that God calls us, it's not some long journey. It is but one step to the other side. And suddenly, we are among those that we loved and that we miss so much. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said, The distance between the glorified spirits in heaven and the militant saints on earth seems great. But it is not so. We are not far from home. Heaven is just one sigh. And we get there. Just one sigh. And we're on the other side. Our departed friends and loved ones are only in the upper room, as it were, of the very same house in which we dwell. They have not gone far off. They are upstairs and we are down below. And there will come our time that we will step over to where they are. You've heard me say, and I know that it's something that you probably didn't hear growing up in the Baptist church, and and we often don't recognize this and think about this. But there are those saints. Who are triumphant. They are already on the other side. They're on the other side. Just upstairs. Just next to us. They are no longer plagued by sin and temptation. But that is the church triumphant. And we are still here. Living in this life. With all of its blessings and all of its burdens. We are the church militant. We're still fighting the spiritual warfare. The enemy is still attacking us. We still face temptation. We still struggle with sin. So there is the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant on earth. And I've said to you and I've pled with you about how important this time is every Sunday morning. That of all the things Calvary Church does, has done in the past, might do in the future. Understand, this is by far the most important. This, when we gather to worship, to take the Lord's Supper, to baptize new believers, to preach, to sing, to pray, this is the only thing the Bible says is non-negotiable that we have to do. Every other ministry, whether it's Sunday school or whatever it is, outreach, whatever it is, those are extensions and they are important, but this is the non-negotiable. And this is why every single believer and certainly every single member of this covenant relationship if they are not providentially hindered by sickness or by age and ability or or by other things beyond their control. That's why we need to be here in this place every single Sunday. We don't need to be out shopping somewhere. We don't need to be out playing somewhere. We don't need to be doing all those other things that we like to do. We need to remember that this is where we're supposed to be. Why? Because this is when the church militant, you and me, are actually joining the church triumphant in heaven in the worship of God. There is nothing else you can ever do to join with the church that is already in God's presence other than in corporate worship with God's people here. That's why it's so, so important. Yes, our number is few, 60, 70, or whatever. But right now, we are in the presence of an innumerable host in heaven. And we who still wear the garment stained with sin and we who still struggle with some of the most basic of things are privileged to come into the presence of those who have washed their robes white in the blood of Jesus and are in gleaming array, singing in perfect unity and unison in heaven. We join them when we come together in times like this. Well, we need to stop. Jesus, knowing the time, Jesus, Knowing who he was, Jesus, knowing where he had come from, Jesus, knowing where he was going, was willing to love them to the end by displaying the humility of taking off his garments, getting on his knees, and washing their filthy, dirt, mud-encrusted feet. Even the feet of Judas Iscariot. My friend, we only truly love when love leads us to serve other people like that. That's the true mark of love. Only absolute humility can generate absolute love. Only Absolute humility can result and demonstrate absolute love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this astonishing story. Father, forgive me for so long just reading it and thinking that's nice and moving on. Forgive me for not understanding and living fully what it means to love like Jesus loved. Help us to be servants, to be slaves of others. For when we wash one another's feet, even the feet of the enemies of the cross, we are in reality walking in Jesus' footsteps and washing His feet. May we be faithful to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Our hearts desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfedville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.